0: Love Talk Radio Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is psychologist Mud Smith, that's builder of mud homes and writer working oh, who's just completed his 15th book. Dr. Bob Rich, welcome. Hi, Maggie. Now, before we begin chatting, um, can I please just ask you to read us a little bit from your latest book Ascending Spiral?
1: Okay. Here my young man is 15 years old. I had a special bond with my father's best horse, Harry, a large young gelding who was as happy pulling a cart or a plough as being ridden. He was the first horse I'd ever trained under best supervision. One summer day I was up on his back, returning from a message for my father from the next village, and somehow I felt uneasy. I turned to look behind. A yellow dust cloud rose above the hill I just descended, and that was when I noticed a vibration in the ground. Before I could do anything, a group of galloping riders burst over the rise, two abreast along the narrow road. The lead man's arm moved in a circle, then a terrible sting along my side, and Harry jumped, pushed into the country, and I was falling off the edge, falling down toward the sea. Over the drumming of hooves I heard laughter. Agony beyond bearing. I opened my eyes but made no sense of what I saw. Through a blur I was looking at something brown. Salt water washed over my head, into my mouth, nose and eyes. I coughed and must again have fainted for a moment from the pain. Very, very carefully I managed to raise myself on an elbow. Under me, wedged between two sharp rocks, was poor Harry, very clearly dead. I'd landed on top of him, missing those rocks. My left arm was bent halfway between elbow and shoulder. Every breath was a sore tooth there, but I had to move or die. Bit by bit I managed to kneel, holding my left arm with the right hand. But when I tried to stand, an even worse jolt of agony speared into my left leg. I looked down to see bloody bone broken through the skin. I knew I was as good as dead. After an unknown time of despair, I heard, Hey, down there! I looked up to see Mr. O'Shea, the man I'd visited. Oh, Dermot, don't move, lad, we'll get you out by boat. I don't know how long it took them, but the tide was well out by then. They beached the boat, gently put me in a scrap of fishing net, and the four of them lifted me in. And they rowed out, hauled up the sail, and headed north away from my home. When the first wave pitched boat, again, when the first wave pitched the boat, I screamed to my shame. A man gave me a flask, and I took a mouthful. The whisky burned its way down, dulling the pain. They gave me a rope to bite on, and I closed my eyes and endured. Twice more I got a slug of whisky, and at last we pulled into a big wharf for the dark of night by then. Again they carried me on some netting into a building. I heard Mr. O'Shea say through the fog in my head, The blessing of God on you, Doctor. The accursed English this slid over a cliff. Someone held a cup to my lips. I swallowed, more burning liquid but tasting different than darkness came. When I awoke, my arm and leg hurt no more than from a, than from a bad cut, but my head pounded with a terrible pulsing rhythm. I'd often I'd often seen men with the hangover, of course, and knew it was the price for the relief of the whiskey. I must have made a noise for a door squeaked and the woman said Awake are you, lad? She came into my view, an old woman with a haggard face but kind eyes. She helped me to sit, and I saw that my broken arm was nestled between two shaped bits of timber with padding under. She'd bought a big cup with steam rising from it and I drank a tasty broth that filled my stomach and settled my headache then I slept Father arrived the next day Sorry you're laid up, son, he said and sorry to have lost Harry Good horse he was The best, there. I sat up and he put an extra pillow behind me Bernie O'Shea came and told me about it Bloody English This can't go on What were they doing here? Surveying the land, they said. What's that mean? Looking over to see which bits they'll steal next. Bah,
0: buy me a gun.
1: By the time I'm grown, I want to be the best English killer in the land. Tell them that we've got a gun. That little old thing is fine for shooting birds. I want a modern gun with rifling in the barrel, like uh, Mr. O'Connor told us about. I'll make it pay hunting. He thought. We can afford it. Just sell more whiskey. Finding one to buy and the end, ammunition for it, that's something else. Oh, I nearly forgot. He reached into his bag and pulled out a parcel wrapped in a clean white cloth. For you from your sweetheart. My chicat, you mean? We laughed together while I we laughed together while I unwrapped it. As I chewed the first sweet mouthful, I'd heard Nave's giggling laugh. That's it.
0: Mm. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, you've set the book in a number of different historical periods, um, that being one of them, of course, um, dealing with the, the Irish and the English and uh, I guess really the beginnings of what became you know, pretty ongoing sort of war. Um, how did you choose your different historic periods?
1: I had no choice. I wrote down what I was told. I had to do it.
0: So tell me tell me how you got told what what's the process by which you got told this?
1: Okay. One morning I woke with a thought with a sentence in my mind. And I'm just looking for it in my book. The first time I saw my love Oops. <laughs> this
0: is the first sentence, isn't
1: it? Well, after the well, the it starts with a man in our times who introduces what the story is about. But then the real story starts in AD, 805 AD. The that's first, true, the
0: Viking era.
1: The first time I saw my love, she had long dark hair with a red band holding it in place, fancy blue eyes and a long elfin face that was quick, that was quick to flash into a shy smile. And I knew immediately that the second time I saw my love, uh, she had golden hair, a square face, and a terrible temper. She was two years of age and me four, and when her parents and mine worked in the potato fields, it was my task to to keep her from mischief. So that was Dermot, the, the young man we just met.
0: And that that sentence came to you entirely. Um, how did the rest of the book come?
1: The main characters, the main storyline. I was told and I just had to write it down but that was like a skeleton and then I filled in the rest as you write fiction.
0: So, did it come to you in a dream?
1: No. My dreams usually don't make sense. No, I often do that. Um, Like once I was entering a short story contest and a good thing to do then is to look up the judge. The judge wrote young adult detective fiction. So I said, I want a young adult detective story. Next morning, I woke up with a thought. And no one notices an ugly little girl with glasses. And that was my heroine. And she solved the the crime that her father, the the policeman, couldn't. Mm.
0: (laughs) Wonderful. So it came to you from the universe. Yep. Uh, Not only does the book move across a number of historical periods, but it also moves across a number of genres, sci-fi and historical fiction being probably the most prevalent, although there are some others in there as well. Um, Did that also come? I mean, really, was the whole, I guess, the whole type of book in your mind when you started writing, or um, were you thinking that you'd be writing in a particular genre?
1: I knew from the start that this person... Went through life after life after life and was forced to do so because of having made a, made a terrible mistake 12,000 years ago when the person was an organism that hasn't got male or female and was a, a creature out in space, not on a planet. And it made a terrible mistake of destroying all life on the planet for its selfish needs and then had to uh, pay restitution by being one of those little creatures, and that's us, on a different planet, of course. And the restitution is that that person has to be alive when life on this planet gets destroyed. And guess what? That's right now. So that's what the book is really about. Mm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so I suppose sci-fi to a certain extent. Um, but of course there are some pretty significant, as you just alluded to, significant messages in the book,
1: aren't there? Excuse me. Yes, well, I don't like preaching at people. I I, I do write essays and whatnot, but who reads them? You're, you're preaching to the choir. I want people to have an enjoyable read, to start the book and not be able to put down, and whatever beliefs I have will come through without me having to preach. And that's much more fun. So, we are living in times where people have already been killed by a crazy culture. If you think of all the wars in history, and of course, then you get last century, the First World War, Second World War, and so on. And there are still wars right now. They're signs of a crazy culture. And things grow. So they start small seems to be steady state for maybe hundreds and hundreds of years and it appears as if it took off. That's like compound interest, an exponential trend. And that's what's happening. And if you look at the signs things can't last. Right now in Europe, one person in eight is unemployed because the wealth is still there, the resources are there, but society is falling apart. We've got to do something about it now. We've got to do something about it 40 years ago, but this is what we've got. And we can still save something. We have to change the culture. And that's what my hero, who's currently Pip, is trying to do. Yes. Tell me a little bit
0: more about Pip. Um... He's pretty multifaceted, I suppose. Um, perhaps we're all multifaceted, but um, we can see it from a broader perspective with Pip.
1: Well, he's, he's just an ordinary bloke. He's a psychologist. And he's a psychologist because uh, he had suffered in his past. But from the point of view of the overall story, he chose to suffer in order to become a healer. And I think that's the way things really happen. There's fascinating scientific evidence that that's the way things happen. Reincarnation is based on scientific, well I won't say proof, but there's very strong evidence for it.
0: Mm. Uh, and speaking of reincarnation, um, Buddhism seems to run almost like a, a quite a strong thread through the book, um, through each of the different historical periods almost as part of, I guess, the thrust that Pip Pip Lipkin is taking through the book, um, particularly the Four Noble Truths.
1: Yeah, well, that's the theme of the book, that, you know, uh, you you, you live, you do good things, you make mistakes, and then you're guided by a superior being to plan your next life, in which there are significant events that give you learning opportunities. And you undergo suffering, which is training. If you don't suffer, you don't grow. Of course, you can suffer and choose not to grow. People do, but that's your opportunity to become a better person and There's too much to learn in one life, and you just keep going until you're ready and when you're ready, you're ready. you can be a Jesus or a Buddha. Heaven knows I'm not there, but you know people do in every generation. there are some people who can graduate.
0: Mm. Um, I just recently read a book which um, actually excluded Buddhism from religion and said it, it, it. In fact, it was a philosophy. That's perfectly um, correct. Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, Buddhist writings don't mention a, a god. There's no mention of a god at all. So it's not a religion. It is a philosophy. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, and I suppose a, a one that's probably akin to humanism as well.
1: Um, it has fascinating overlaps or similarities with modern scientific findings in physics, psychology, all sorts of fields. So that old wisdom is actually being confirmed by new wisdom.
0: Hmm. Yes, I mean, do you you see that? We're straying a little off the path, but it's quite interesting. I mean, in terms of some of the recent scientific discoveries around quantum physics, for example, that um, there are threads of Buddhism that are actually being picked up in a scientific way, which is quite an interesting twist.
1: And if you read some of the writings from the Dalai Lama, there could be a psychology uh, self-textbook.
0: Yes. Now, one of the stronger themes in the book, and this is certainly um, akin to the suffering, um, is this notion of prejudice, uh, an issue that's, of course, as relevant today as it ever was. Do you think we'll ever evolve out of it, or do you see it as an inherent part of human nature to fear and shun what is apparently different to us?
1: There are some people for whom uh, there is no prejudice because my group is the universe. There are some people for who go back to the caveman days and I'm for my group, my people, my group and must fight off the earth the people. And there are some people for whom there is only me and everybody else is either a tool or an obstacle. And this is a question of spiritual age. So a young and infant soul can only think of the self. Everybody else is like a tool or an obstacle. A toddler is grasping, you know? Everything is me and no and why. And if you put a toddler soul into an intelligent adult body, you get a world leader. And then you get followers, you know, people who basically do as they're told, and there are lots of them too, and that's why the media is so powerful. And then you get the teenagers. Young teenagers are very troubled. Most of my clients in psychology are sort of in that area. They're shaping their future. They're very aware of other people's opinions. They're growing. They're questioning. It's a very painful part, but a very good part. Many creative people are in that area. And then, of course, as you grow older and older, you get to the point of being like a Mandela or a Gandhi. And uh, ready to be an adult. And so it is very difficult for people at a certain stage of spiritual development to do what they're capable of doing. So it is up to those of us who are teenagers to help lead the others into a better way of life.
0: Mm. And And perhaps to to choose our leaders from the adults.
1: (laughs) Well, they're also leaders, but people who really make it good in business, politics, military sports, uh, performance, media, they do tend to be uh, very grasping. We'll put any amount of effort in to succeed over others, to be the best. And that, 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 that's a good thing, but they'll do it by trampling over everybody else. I mean, how do you become the best boxer in the world? You, you give brain damage to as many people as possible with gloves on. I did try boxing but I didn't like it, so I switched to judo, which is a much nicer sport. Mm. Anyway, so this is why we're in trouble. Mm. But it's up to us, those of us who can understand the situation, to try and, and convert the culture into one of compassion and cooperation.
0: And would you consider yourself an optimist, do you think we'll succeed?
1: I consider myself a sceptic. I don't believe anything at all, good or bad, but go go on the evidence. And what the evidence says to me is that, no, we won't, but I'm still going to do my best. And some survival may be possible. One of my other books, Sleeper Awake, which is published by Double Dragon Publishing, is about the future about 1,500 years from now, which is post-cataclysmic. You know, everything's been destroyed, some people survive. a new world has been built. And I have fun them designing a good world to live in. Mm. So if there is survival, I hope it will go that way.
0: Yes. Mm. Well, speaking of survival, um, another critical theme, and one that probably... I think it's fair to say, unites you know, much of your work um, in much of the different areas that you work in, is this notion of sustainability. Mm.
1: Well, you know, if if, if you uh, acting act as if there was infinite resources in a finite system, you're going to fall on your face. It is, I mean, it it doesn't take a genius to see simple mathematics. And Basically, we are, or when was it? Around about 2002, it was calculated that at that stage, we were using the resources of one and a half planets, and we've only got one. And since then, it's got worse. So, economic growth is the problem, and whenever anything goes wrong, people try to increase economic growth, which just makes it worse. It's a cancer that's eating us. So, we've got to change to a sustainable world, in order to have a life and it's not enough to just have a life I want it to have a good life to be a good life that means it's got to be a a good place to live on this planet consumer society is designed on this satisfaction if you're happy with what you've got you stop buying if you stop buying then you stop working at meaningless jobs and the economy grinds to a halt so to keep the economy going and to continue transferring wealth from the poor to the rich, you need to make people feel dissatisfied with what they've got, and that's not a nice way to live. Mm.
0: Yes, and I suppose that that is also a fairly important theme in Ascending Spiral. One of the lessons, one of the many lessons, I think that uh, that Pip has to learn, and not just learn, but I guess share mm. with
1: others. Oh, I think Pip was born with that. Uh, Pip had some very good teachers put into his life, main one being his Uncle Paul. Uncle Paul had two aims in life, to screw as many women as possible and make as much money as possible. So Pip early on decided to do the opposite. And uh, Uncle Paul was a very young soul, a, a typical example of grasping, grasping, grasping. It's mine, mine, mine. And if you get in my way, you're bad, so I've got a right to hit you.
0: Mm. Yes. I I mean, um, speaking of making money, mm. you've noted in interviews, um, even though you prefer writing fiction, um, your non-fiction sells better. Why do you think non-fiction sells better than fiction?
1: I think because people buy non-fiction when they need the contents. Uh, And... While fiction is entertainment, and you can get entertained in many ways, and there are so many books out there, you get lost in the crowd. But you've got to be lucky. Uh, I started writing for a magazine with a very nice circulation, very targeted circulation, and so I had a name for myself before my first book came out. And that sold well over 100,000 copies in Australia, which is pretty good. But when I started fiction, that didn't, didn't count. That reputation didn't transfer across. But Ascending Spiral is my best book to date, and I'm really trying hard to bring it to people's attention.
0: Yes, do you, do you think there's a, a misconception out there um, that perhaps fiction is in some way um, less true than, than non-fiction?
1: Well, fiction is more true than non It's a distillation. Mm. I mean, what brings out a person's character better? A photograph or a cartoonist's sketch? The cartoonist can put in little things in there that really show up that person, that public personality. And that's what fiction can do. It can be a distillation of the truth. If you look at the great writers, Hemingway, for example, there's so much truth in there. In such few words, it's beautiful. I really admire, admire Hemingway.
0: Yes, and and um, um, you know, particularly in relation to ascending spiral, when a story comes to you, um, I guess in, in such a whole form, um, almost ready to ready to go, well, with all the periods in place and so forth, there must be an inherent truth in there.
1: Well, I think it's all based on science. I'm a scientist. I'm a obsessively a scientist. And so, I wouldn't put into my my book or any of my books anything that I think is false. So uh, there are, for example, none of my characters go by uh, uh, the zodiac, you know astrology. I just I don't believe it's true. I think it's it's make believe, and so I don't put it in.
0: Mm. On the other
1: hand, I put in reincarnation because there is evidence for it.
0: Yes. Now you've talked about the way we as a society tend to over-specialize. Um, do you think that we need, you know, one of the things that might help us in our, you know, in our struggling culture um, is more Renaissance types like you, people who are able to move across multiple fields and connect the dots?
1: That's exactly right. Uh, look, human happiness depends on living the kind of life that allows you to be happy. And we were evolved to be hunter-gatherers. So people have studied hunter-gatherers and have extracted six things that they do that modern society doesn't. That's good nutrition, adequate sleep, vigorous physical exercise, creativity, fun, social connectedness. And there is a seventh that they don't have to worry about, which is meaning, and that's if you put those seven together, if you have those seven things in your life, then you're living a good life. Then you have contentment. So a person who can only do one thing is A, vulnerable. You know, what happens if uh, you're a specialist in, in a particular kind of uh, technology and that technology goes out of date, gets replaced? And, and B, it's, it's inherently miserable. After a while, you get burnt out. There may be exceptions. I mean, if you're a a passionate violin player and you earn your money uh, playing as a first violin or symphony orchestra, that may be fine, you know? But that's pretty rare. And even then, it's good if if that person also likes growing flowers and going for runs and enjoys raising children, whatever. Maybe cooking a good meal and camping out. You don't want to be a a single thread person. Mm
0: yes now um, you're a pretty busy guy I know and uh, you always have a couple of projects on the go talk to me a little bit about some of the things you're working on at the moment I know you're promoting Ascending Spiral but are there other projects in in the pipeline?
1: well at the moment I'm editing a book for a lady uh, as a paid job Uh, uh, well actually for a publisher but it's a lady uh, writing it Uh, I see clients as a counselling psychologist three days a week I've got a book, which is about ninety thousand words, and I'm trying to pull it into, pull all the subplots into a nice closure, when I get the time to write. And uh, I'm involved in various voluntary activities. For example, people, mostly young people, write emails to me from all around the world, cries for help, and by some magic I'm able to help them, which is wonderful. Like there is a young man in Ireland who was going to murder everybody in his school. Now he's completely changed his motivations and he's actually studying. He's got a girlfriend, although at the moment I think it's an ex-girlfriend, they come and go. But he's just now a normal, decent young man. And he blames me for it.
0: Credits you, I think. (laughs) Um, perhaps you could uh, get that the word out a little bit more broadly. I think quite a few people could e- make use of uh, that kind of service.
1: Well, yeah, well, I do uh, do paid internet counselling too. Mm. But, you know, a typical 15, 17 year old hasn't got the money, wouldn't tell mum about it so mum could pay for it. You know, they want because they're ashamed of their inner, inner problems. Mm. So.
0: Yes, I mean, I guess that brings up one, one more point, really, which is the need to talk, the need to connect people, you know, with one another, the need to actually express things.
1: Yeah, well, I mentioned social connectedness. I'm a loner. I'd be fine in a, in a cave in the desert, but uh, or on a solo trip around the world, you know. But uh, when I found out about social connectedness, I had 20 social connections a social connection when there's a group of two or more people where I'm important in the lives of the others and they're important in my life. And at any one time, I have about 20 of these. Which is why um, I, I live a contented life. One of the reasons. Mm. Oh. Yes.
0: Well, unfortunately, that is about all the time we have for today. Um, But Bob, thank you so much for dropping by. Um, And readers, if you want to find out more about Bob and sign up for his eclectic and interesting newsletter, Bobbing Around, um, drop by his website. Uh, Bob, do you want to tell us um, your website?
1: Well, I've got got three, but they're cross-linked. Easiest one to look at would be bobswriting.com. So that's B-O-B-S-W-R-I-T-I-N-G. And there's lots, Fantastic. lots of free reading there. Well,
0: yes, there is indeed, and uh, I highly commend the newsletter. And don't forget to join us next month at the Compulsive Reader Talks when we interview Philomena van Riswick, who will be reading from and talking about her new poetry book, Bread of the Lost. Thank you very much. Bye for now.